Happy New Year! This is Rohit Bhargava, author of the non-obvious 2019 trend series, How to Predict Trends and Win the Future, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now on with the show. Today, we ring in the new year and welcome Rohit Bhargava back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the third time to talk about his newest book, Non-Obvious 2019 Edition, How to Predict Trends and Win the Future. Rohit Bhargava is a trend curator and marketing expert dedicated to bringing more humanity back to business. He is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of six books on topics as wide-ranging as the future of business and consumers, how to build a trustworthy brand, and why real leaders never eat cauliflower. His signature book, Non-Obvious, has helped inspire over one million readers to think different. As a non-boring keynote speaker, Rohit has been invited to deliver multiple TEDx talks and taken the stage at over 500 events in 31 countries around the world. And before starting the non-obvious company, Rohit spent 12 years leading marketing and innovation strategy for brands at two of the largest agencies in the world, Leo Burnett and Ogilvy. And outside of his speaking and consulting, he's also an adjunct professor of marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University, Go Hoyas, and his insights have been featured on NPR, Fast Company, CNN, Harvard Business Review, and the Marketing Book Podcast. I put that last one in. He believes in listening before talking, and his business card and his LinkedIn profile describes him as a nice guy, a claim he hopes to prove by returning to the Marketing Book Podcast each year and putting up with the host's Really stupid jokes. An interesting fact, he has a drink named after him, the Rojito. Rohit, congratulations on Non-Obvious 2019, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I feel like I'm in very elite company, so I uh, appreciate you bringing me back every year. Well, it's great to kick off the year with you. And yes, you are in very elite company. I think there's fewer than 10 authors that have been on three times on the Marketing Book Podcast. And... 
after this interview, uh, there will be a special induction ceremony. And <laughs> being in the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club uh, allows you to have uh, special privileges, such as early bird specials at the Oakton, Virginia Olive Garden. <laughs> I'm going to start uh, using that as part of my bio from now forward. Okay. Well, Rowan, in, in, in all honesty, I, I'm joking because there is no Olive Garden in Oakton. You see, I do extensive research for each of these interviews, like finding out where the Olive Gardens are in the author's hometown. But at any rate, let me just read one sentence, I think, from the beginning of the book where you say, the simple aim of this book is to teach you how to notice the things that others miss. I call this non-obvious thinking. And learning to do it for yourself can change your business and your career. Now, Rohit, before we get into the book, I've just got to share with you some of the really uh, crazy things I was thinking as I was reading this year's edition. A few years back on MTV, there was a, a show called Celebrity Deathmatch with little claymation figures that were in a boxing ring. Did you ever see that? I, I think I might have watched like a little bit of one episode. I don't think I made it through an entire. <laughs> well, it, that tells you something about your intellect level and uh, and, you know, and where mine is. But anyway, or little... attention level, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really funny and kind of absurd. But it was these. The, they would do a claymation model of these two celebrities, and they would fight to the death. It was really kind of gruesome, but it was all in claymation. So all I could think of was them bringing that show back, and it would be a celebrity death match, and it would be. Captain Obvious, the spokesman for Hotels.com, versus Rohit Bhargava, author of the non-obvious books. And, and let me just say, Rohit, I think you would kick his butt. Well, you know, I, uh, I picture Captain Obvious at the end of every year when I read pretty much every article that talks about trends for the next year. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, let's back up. Say more about the difference between what you mean by obvious and non-obvious, because that's really a central tenet of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think that we are generally surrounded by obvious. I mean, we're surrounded by cliches. We're surrounded by people who say, oh, the hot trend in 2019 is going to be drones, right? Uh, just, you know, something <laughs> that exists smartphones. is basically listed as a trend. Yeah. Or like the rise of smartphones. And, you know, those things are, they're not untrue, but they're useless. Uh, because there's no direction to them, right? It's like saying the the trend in 2019 is going to be that we breathe oxygen. Well, great, man. That was the trend for every year that we've been alive, too. Good to hear. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. But it doesn't really tell us anything. Um, and I think that the problem with a lot of that is it becomes uh, the reason why people get skeptical about any of this stuff. Because they're looking at things that are supposed to be insightful and they're actually not. And when they read them, they think, oh, I already knew that. And maybe it's just reminding me of something I already knew, but that's not particularly valuable. And so every year I spend a lot of time uh, with my team in discussions and just thinking about like, what is the new unique angle for these things that we might have heard of that will give someone something new? Mm -hmm. So this is the time of year when I'm reading a lot of these articles about what's new for or what the predictions are from the experts on fill in the blank. And after having read a a few years of your book editions, reading those kinds of articles is even more painful <laughs> because, <laughs> because I know too much. Thanks, Bargava. 
So could yep. you, you've ruined it for me, but actually you've, you've probably made me smarter about this nonsense that I'm reading. Can you say a little bit more about the specifics of why trend predictions, by and large, are, as you say, spectacularly worthless? Yeah, I think a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that the most obvious reason why is because a lot of people who are doing these trend predictions are doing them for self-serving reasons. Mm-hmm. Like a drone salesman. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm selling something, then of course the trend in 2019 or whenever is going to be that that thing is the hot thing, right? Because that helps me sell that thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's no agenda behind this trend research that I'm putting out there, right? Um, And that's the first thing because I'm not selling any one thing really that is pointing to the fact that this trend report has to be about that. Mm -hmm. I think the other reason is that a lot of people who are looking at, at trends If they're in the futurist category, they're looking at these big societal changes that could happen and predicting something that might happen in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And that is pretty much science fiction. And I don't say that to dismiss it because I love science fiction. Science fiction allows us to imagine a future that could be and helps the people who might make that future to actually do it. But it doesn't tell you what's going to happen. It's not really a prediction. It's like a hope. It's a painted vision, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these trend people who focus on the trends in the long term, like that's essentially what they're doing. And the problem is they're presenting it as this is will happen as opposed to science fiction, which is this could happen. And this is a potential future that may be our future, but we may do something else. The other problem with a lot of these trend predictions is that they focus on one industry. And so you'll read here are the trends in financial services and here are the e-commerce trends and here are the retail trends and here are the fashion trends. And the problem with that is that they're all looking at the same sources in order to create this idea of trends in a particular industry. And one of the biggest things that I try and teach in this book is that the beauty comes from the intersections. And if you can see the intersections between industries, you can see what no one else is seeing. Right. And so there are also a few myths of trend prediction that you talk about in the book. And uh, you seem to be bursting some bubbles there. I mean, even that that I might have had, or that the the first time reader might have seen, like the idea that trends are spotted. Yeah, I uh, I hear this term a lot, trend spotter, and it's not my favorite term. And the reason why is because what it says is that you're walking down the street and there's a trend sitting there, and all you have to do is open your eyes and you'll be like, oh, that's a trend. There it is. I spotted it. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead of using that term, the term I prefer is trend curator or trend curation. And the reason I love this idea of curation is because, I mean, most of us, unless we work in content marketing, you know the term curation from museums. Uh, Curators work in museums. And if you think about what that curator does, the job of a curator is to go through this collection of paintings and sculptures or whatever the museum has and to decide what 10% of it you're going to put on display. Mm -hmm. And you don't put everything you have up on the walls. You instead tell a story and choose what you're going to show. And that to me is what really thoughtful people who are seeing things that no one else sees are doing. They're curating ideas and figuring out what to pay attention to and what to put on the walls, so to speak, what to pay attention to and what to not pay attention to. Right. And you also say, and I got to believe this may hurt a few feelings, you say a myth is that trends are predicted by industry experts. Yeah, I hear a lot of industry experts. And in fact, there are people who have said that in order to predict trends or to be a trend spotter, as they call them, you need special training. 
And I don't believe that. My philosophy is much more like if you've ever seen that uh, animated film Ratatouille, uh, where the whole premise is anyone can cook. Um, I believe that about trends. Like, I think we all have the capacity to see around the corner and to see trends. Uh, we just have to learn the right process to do it. And so that's what I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about. Mm-hmm. Now, vocabulary words, but they're very important. Explain the difference between a trend and a fad. A trend, to me, typically describes something that is a behavior or a belief of an individual. And so it describes how we think and why we make the choices that we do, why we buy certain things, why we believe certain things. A fad usually is about a product or a, or a uh, service or something. It's about a thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's not about a belief. It's about a thing. Mm-hmm. And it often comes on the scene and leaves even faster. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, when I read the uh, books, the the non-obvious books, I'm reminded of this phenomenon where, now my kids are now in their early 20s, but when they were growing up, I don't really notice them growing up because because I was with them every day. But then somebody would come and visit once a year or see them and they go, gosh, I can't believe how much they grew. And it sort of recalibrated, wow, I, I hadn't noticed. And I may be the only one that's felt this way, but that in, a death, in addition to Celebrity Deathmatch, I thought about that as I'm reading this because it's, it's the one book out of the year I read where it, I lift my head up and realize, oh, wow, <laughs> I hadn't noticed all this going along, but it made complete sense. And it also is nothing that, was, um, that I noticed. I guess, I guess they were non-obvious. I guess that tingling means it's working. <laughs> yeah, I think that is part of the the intent, you know, and it's sort of like that idea of, you know, a lot of times when you go to the theater and you watch a movie and you come out of that movie and you're like, oh, that movie made me think of like something, but you don't necessarily know how to articulate it in exactly the right way because you just saw the movie and it's not really your your thing to articulate. But then maybe you read a review of it or you read someone um, someone's take on it, or you talk to someone who says, Oh, that made me think of this. And you're like, yeah, you know, that's what it was. Like, that's what I was thinking of. Right. Couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of this book does elicit that kind of response from people. And I think the reason why it does is because part of the process of this is that I'm saving stories continually throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And so I'll save a story from like January and then I'll save a story from March and then I'll save one from September and then I'll save one from November, right? And I'll aggregate all those together and say, well, this is what all of those together are telling us. Mm-hmm. And what happens for most people is they would have just remembered the one that they read from November, even though they probably might have seen the other stories as well. And when someone says this story you just heard relates to those other three things from those months ago, you knew that in the back of your head but you weren't thinking about it. And when you did, when you read the book, then you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> like that did like that. I, I did think about that at that time. Yeah. But it's not current yeah. for you. It's not top of mind until someone brings it up. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more briefly about it's a year long process. It's not like you just spin these up at Thanksgiving dinner, but first, before you talk a bit about the, this process, it's like a, manufacturing plant <laughs> that you've got this thing going on all year. How did you get started with all this trend curation stuff? So it started uh, in 2011. That was the first year that the non-obvious trend report came out as a report. 
And at that point, it was basically a PowerPoint presentation. And I was still at Ogilvy at that point, And I was writing my uh, marketing blog. And it was the end of the year. And I was trying to come up with a great blog post. And, you know, trends for the next year is a good blog post. Um, and that was when I first did the report. And that first year, a lot of people started downloading it and looking at it. I think I had like, you know, 20,000 people or something like really at that time big for me, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty good anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's you know, it's good. It's a good audience. And so I decided the following year to do it again. Um, and I had like twice as many people. And then I did it the next year and I had like, you know, four times as many people. And I started expanding the report. So it went from a 15 page PowerPoint to a hundred page PowerPoint. And so I did it a fourth year and it was now, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were looking at it. And so the fifth year I decided that I was going to turn it into a book. Mm-hmm. And that was the first year that non-obvious came out as a book in 2015 and that book really took off it hit the wall street journal bestseller list it was around the time when i part of the reason why i ended up kind of saying okay now i'm going to leave ogilvy and go somewhere else and do my own thing and since then it's been a new annual book every year and every year it starts to get more of an audience it does better now it's in all the airports so it tends to do really well from the airport channel for business travelers and and so it's just kind of taken off from there and so every year now there's a new book version of it but rohit when do you think it's really going to catch on? <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm hoping. Maybe maybe after this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. But talk about the process that you go through uh, throughout the year. And we're talking, um, you're using Sharpies and you've got folders and you print everything out. You must buy a lot of cartridges all year. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do print out a decent amount. And so, you know, it is very physical. I do move paper around and I've posted like some videos of the process now, which I call the haystack method, mm-hmm. um, because you're re- gathering all this information, which is the hay, and then you stick the needle in front of it in the middle of it instead of looking for a needle. So it's not the needle in the haystack cliche. It's like you put the needle in the middle. That's why it's, you know, described in that way. So there is a lot of that, a lot of the collecting of this information throughout the year. You know, this year it was interesting. We did a, I was doing some work with Microsoft, and they did a feature article on the whole process. And as part of that, they did this really interesting photo shoot with me where I was covered head to toe in Post-it notes. And so you can oh, kind of I find that. Yeah. yeah, we'll yeah. include a link to that in your show notes <laughs> for this episode. Yeah, yeah, you, should, you definitely should because it really takes people inside the process, and they did a really great – job of not only the photography of it, but also just describing what that process actually looks like. Because people are fascinated by that. They like to look behind the scenes, right? They like to see how someone came up with this stuff. And, you know, frankly, I mean, this is a basic marketing principle, but the more you're able to take people behind the scenes and be authentic, the more likely they are to believe what you're giving them Mm -hmm. ultimately because they see what went into it. Yeah. Well, let's not overlook the fact that you grade yourself each year. So you're able to keep going back and say, well, this one, I missed the mark, but these I didn't. And I should say that uh, this year versus last year, you had some very good grades, Roy. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> it's getting better year after year, as you would hope it would. But didn't um, this start when you gave a keynote once and somebody said, yeah, well, that's real great, Mr. Trends, but, you know, what happens if you're wrong? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, the, for the first six years, we didn't really... I didn't really go back um, and look at any of these trends. And as soon as I started having a track record and, you know, remember every year there's 15 trends, right? So if you do the math, like now there's well over a hundred trends that have been predicted at some point. 
And so it's natural to want to go backwards and say, wait a second, did these, were they good? Were they right? Are they still happening now? Or do they expire after a year? Because a lot of people think, okay, you do this new book every year. So I don't want the old trends anymore, right? But it's a little bit like the Guinness Book of World Records, right? I mean, just because someone was the tallest guy in 2011 doesn't mean they might not still be the tallest guy in 2019, right? Right. And you reprised some of the trends as well or you know, revisited them. Yeah. So one thing I started doing was – so we uh, do this these trends every year, 15 new trends. And I, what I was finding was like before the trend kind of expired, I was moving on to the next 15. And so these trends weren't getting – the shelf time really and what ended up happening was there was some trends that were predicted like a couple years ago and they were like exploding now but i'd already predicted it and so i can't like go back right yeah the, like the velocity had actually increased since you may have identified it four years ago exactly right yeah so what i started doing i think three years ago is every year i started publishing 10 brand new trends and bringing back five previous trends and so now the format every year is that there's 10 new, all new trends, and there's five previously predicted trends that are from any past year except the immediate past year. So in 2019, the five past trends are not from 2018. They're from previous years before that. You know, I think I read the trends that had been mentioned in earlier years even more closely. <laughs> when I see them coming back, <laughs> it's like, holy cow. There really is something going on here, and it's gone even, you know, it's taken a slightly different turn or something. Yeah, exactly right. It's, um, you know, it really does kind of turn into turn into that. And so they do, you're, you're exactly right. They take a turn sometimes. They, they used to be more about one thing, and now they've kind of become about something else. Yeah. So let's get into just a few of them. We don't know. You said there's 15, and there's all these others from previous years. I wanted to just mention a few and ask you to talk about it. And I've somewhat randomly, but I, I picked out some that I thought were really going to be helpful for the for the audience of the, the Marketing Book Podcast. And the first one is called Strategic Spectacle. And of course, you know, once you explain it and you give a few examples, I go, oh, that's right. I Gosh, I hadn't realized, I didn't realize that was a trend. But that's where you talk about brands are intentionally creating spectacles of themselves. Talk about that. Yeah, there's one thing that uh, that I think we've uh, we've all probably heard at some point, which is people want experiences more mm -hmm. than they want products, right? Oh, absolutely, and that and they're paying for an experience; they're not paying for a product. Exactly, and so we've been talking about that for years now, right? That's not new, but this is a perfect example of seeing the patterns between multiple things because uh, one of the things that everyone was doing probably nine months, everyone in marketing at least was doing about nine months ago, and all my friends in the agencies were, is playing this uh, online game, HQ Trivia, right? So they'd dial in at a certain time and they'd play this trivia game. And it was like this momentary spectacle. And then later on, and this is a much more recent story, you had uh, the artist, uh, Banksy, doing his painting that got shredded after it sold for like $1.4 million. Like a few seconds after it was sold at the auction house. A few seconds <laughs> after it was sold. Exactly, exactly, right? And so those two things uh, in many people's minds were separated by seven months. But when you take them together and look at a pattern between them, one of the things you start to find is these live experiences, these moments in time that people are experiencing, they start to talk about and they start to live through. And it's a spectacle, but it's strategically done. It's not an accident. Mm -hmm. Like the uh, the eclipse that occurred in 2018, that wasn't planned, but that was probably the only spectacle that wasn't. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and you start to put these pieces together and, and the implication of it is that strategy and spectacle are intersecting now and that creating a spectacle on purpose may be a great marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I wanted to write about and talk about in this trend. Yeah, it's really no longer available in television unless maybe it's the Super Bowl or the World Cup or some big sporting event, really. Right, exactly. Or maybe a, some sort of political debate or a, a news conference or something like that. Let's talk about, I, I had another author, Joel Backler, on the podcast, and he wrote this great book on influencer marketing. It was called uh, Digital Influence. And uh, this was very interesting to see come up in one of your trends, and it's called Artificial Influence. And uh, it's a little depressing, I guess, but it's like corporations and all governments and everything, they're using like these virtual creations to shift public perception and sell products and, and try to get results. I guess I wonder, as I was reading it, I was wondering if some of the, the issues with Facebook, if, if they're having to wrestle with some of this. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by artificial influence? There was a lot in here. And, um, and I think that you're right. It was really, some of it was quite disturbing. And some of it was fascinating in a not disturbing, but in a futuristic fascinating mm, way. So yeah. things like people going to virtual concerts for this uh, Japanese animated uh, hologram named Hats- Hatsune Miko and treating her as if she's like a real celebrity and going to see concerts of her, even though she's a fabrication um, who performs music created by others. Or the announcement in, uh, I think it was October, that uh, there's going to now be holographic tours of deceased artists. So Michael Jackson or Amy Winehouse might have a music tour, and they'll have a real band backing them up. But they, they themselves will obviously be a hologram because they're no longer living. Well, I, maybe we're starting to redefine what living means. I- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Because they live on through their performances. And so they can generate the performances. Yeah. I read that and I just thought I have got to see this. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, so, so interesting. So interesting. But like you have that and then you combine that with like the rise of deep fakes and this, this, this really dangerous idea that now you can insert someone's face into certain situations and like on video, to, not just on an like image. on video. Yeah. yeah. Not, like on video and, and to the naked eye, like you can't tell that it's been faked. Um, which is really dangerous, right? And it's causing some really big problems. I mean, deep fake videos, uh, many people blame for the election results in the Philippines and how, um, the, uh, the new Filipino president ended up actually winning the presidency. Because somebody produced video of his opponent. Exactly. In compromising compromising sexual positions and yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, he would say that it's real and then she would say that it wasn't and, you know, it ended up being fake, uh, but it led to a lot of perception challenges. And, and in some of these countries, uh, Facebook has been very central to the problem because they've come into the country and said, look, we'll give you free internet access, but it has to go through Facebook. And so they've effectively created a monopoly in certain countries where they own the internet and therefore they own the media. And when the media propagates through Facebook to be incorrect and Facebook doesn't correct it, really dangerous things start to happen. Yeah, and you also mentioned how I think it was Unilever who said, going forward, we are not going to work with any influencers if we find out that they purchased followers. Yeah. I mean, some of the big like P&G and, and, uh, and uh, Unilever, I mean, they've been very forward thinking about saying, look, we're going to pull the dollars. 
And really scary things for the advertising industry have happened when they've done tests on that. Like, for example, pulling uh, tens of millions of dollars and seeing no negative impact on their sales. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous because now all of a sudden these people who are selling the advertising can't say, well, you need this in order to continue growing your market share because here's some evidence saying, look, we were just fine without it. So why don't we just save the money? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the takeaways for me about the discussion of artificial influence is uh, an unfortunate reminder of just how the trust people have in organizations, in companies, and governments uh, is perilous. It's 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 it seems like it's it's going down even further. Yeah, um, that is a, a, a definitely a takeaway. Yeah. So an, the next one was one that re- really works on me, and I didn't realize it was and it's called maybe it's because i'm just a little bit older but it's called retro trust where nostalgia plays a, a big role so organizations who have some kind of legacy they're tapping into that and i didn't even realize kodak was still around <laughs> so yeah if you could talk about that but also what i'm wondering is what about new companies you know what, what are they supposed to do if they don't have a, a history like uh like kodak yeah, so um, you're right. Yeah, Kodak is uh, still coming back and doing things that that uh, many people don't expect. I mean, they're bringing back film, for example, uh, because there's a group of photographers who love film and want to start shooting on actual film again. Um, and then they're doing really interesting forward-looking things to take their brand and the heritage of it and partnering with fashion retailer Forever 21 to create a line of streetwear um, using the logo. Uh, because the logo still has a lot of nostalgia and meaning for people. So that's like one example of them doing this and capitalizing on their nostalgia. Nintendo, if you've been watching some of the things they've done to create the Nintendo Classic and the games that I used to play when I was a kid, uh, and being able to see some of those things come back again are another example. And then to your other point of like, well, what if you're a newer brand and you don't have that kind of nostalgia? Well, yeah, a lot of newer brands are creating products that have the nostalgia. I mean, think about some of the newer brands that are creating turntables because people are buying records again, mm-hmm. right, and vinyl. I mean, these are new brands, but they're doing something that relates to something that is a older experience. Yeah, it's interesting. I was at Content Marketing World last year, and the whole theme was these, like, Nintendo video games. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I read your uh, book, and then it's like, oh, I see what you guys were doing. It was really v- very well done. But the whole thing was about those the the video games from from back in the day. Yeah, it's uh, that's definitely been a big uh, big piece of it. Video games, toys from when we were kids, um, and bringing those back in some way. So there was another one that was probably of greatest interest to me, and I've read about it before. I can't remember which year it was, but it was what you call B to Beyond Marketing. And I think that would be very interesting to the listeners. And you talk about how these B2B brands, still not most of them, I guess, but they're starting to use more non-traditional methods to sort of show their human side, which I know is important to you, and (laughs) it certainly works well in the marketplace, where they're trying to reach decision makers that they might have been a little more uh, surgical about in the past, but they're going to a broader audience. Yeah, I mean, I think there's more and more examples of these B2B brands who are realizing that when they have something interesting on a human level, they can reach many more than just the people in their industry. And that's okay because the positive word of mouth ensures that the people in their industry will hear about it. So if you think about several years ago, uh, what Volvo Trucks did with Jean-Claude Van Damme with the epic split where he was kind of balanced between two 18-wheelers that were backing up 
and they were showing their traction control of the 18-wheelers. And I understand they picked him because you uh, declined the gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tried out, but uh, it was not something I was able to perform <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Uh, on camera. Yeah, okay. uh, at least not comfortably. <laughs> yeah, speaking engagement that day, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I sent them to you, but I guess you didn't. You turned it down as well. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I screened my calls, so uh, <laughs> I had a marketing sense. book podcast interview to do. Come on, yeah, we, yeah, we, we suffer it's... for our art. Uh, hey, you know what? That's uh, that's what we together would call that is staying on brand, right? <laughs> okay, uh, so okay. we're uh, we're doing a good job of that. <laughs> yeah. or, or the other one was like the caterpillar backhoes or, or tractors that were playing Jenga against each other with seven hundred pound blocks of wood exactly yes yes yeah. i had and seen that, that on, the, yeah. on the internet too yeah and those are you know those are just examples of something that is just interesting on a human level it's interesting mm -hmm. but it's a particularly brilliant form of b2b marketing because what they're doing is marketing something that most of us would never buy but they're doing it in such a way that makes it relatable so that they guarantee that even like for example if you or i knew someone who worked in an industry where they purchased trucks or where they worked with trucks or where they managed drivers or, or actually drove a truck. And we saw that the first person we'd send it to is that person. Yeah. Or, or I'd say, Hey, did you see it? Yeah, exactly. So what you're ensuring is that a hundred percent of your target audience is going to see this because everybody who's not the target audience is going to send it to them. Very powerful, very powerful. But you're seeing more of it. But I, I, my sense is a lot of the B2B world's like, no, we're risk averse. They have this yearning for a certain amount of sameness. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, maybe it's sameness, but I think it's also the bigger fear that I see when I talk to the, these big brands is the fear of wastage, right? Oh, yes, yes. And when they create something like this, which clearly would go out to people who are not their target audience, there are some companies that say, look, that is not specifically for procurement managers at trucking companies. And that they don't care about watching a video of Jean-Claude Van Damme, right? And so they decide not to do it because they know that the people who are interested in that, they don't see them as their target audience. And that kind of thinking is typically short-sighted, right? Because what it says is we don't want to be innovative because when someone is a procurement manager for a trucking company, they don't care about innovative. And they forget that that person spends... 18 hours of their day doing other stuff, being a human, watching things that are interesting, right? They don't just live and breathe to be a procurement manager at a trucking company. So there's another one that yet again, I just thought, gosh, you know, it's almost as if Roet is following me around. And that was fad fatigue. <laughs> and I just thought, yes, yes. You know, you talk about how People are, are weary of innovations claiming to be the next big thing. And we may be able to thank our advertising brethren for that. And they're just starting to assume nothing is going to last. And I thought about that, and I want you to talk about it. But also, it had me thinking about people having perhaps marketing fatigue, like marketing fad fatigue. Like they hear about some new term, like one I just mentioned, influencer marketing or something like that. And they're just thinking, yeah, great, you know, that's... That's great. Just one more fad. And then just to go a step further, I was thinking about how there there may also be marketing technology fad fatigue. Because every month you hear about some new marketing technology that's the greatest thing. It's going to, you know, you buy that, all your dreams will come true. But yet I see all this new technology and I'm just thinking like, oh, I'm going to wait until I hear some friends <laughs> sing their praises. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you do have this um, happening 
quite a bit. And I think that what's happened with the internet, I mean, you've always had fads and people have always kind of been tired of them. That's why they're fads, right? People get sick of them. But I think what's different now is with the internet, these fads can be communicated and spread much faster, much more widely, and then die much more visibly. And what was fascinating was as I was doing the research for this, I, I came across one article that really I found entertaining. And it was a article, it was one of those kind of clickbaity style articles, but it was all about fitness fads. And what it promised was that you could see the fitness fad from the year you were born, all the way back to like the 1950s, right? And what does that tell us about fad? That is such a great example. Right, exactly. That there's like, literally, there's a new fad every year in fitness from like stretch bands to foam rollers to like Zumba to, you know, whatever you could name, right? (laughs) Or more than one per year. Yeah, it's just really interesting to see like, what was the year when that one fad took off? And the only thing that's guaranteed is like that fad is no longer the fat, right? <laughs> How quickly they fall. And it reminds me of during the holidays on television, there were some news shows talking about what were popular toys when you were a kid. <laughs> and yeah. that's what came to mind because they would say, well, in 1985 or 1995. And I just thought when I, I had seen those reports, I can't remember where, but then you talk about these fads. I thought that's the exact same thing, except there's actually probably more fitness fads than there are toys. Um, Yes, (laughs) that is true. Just two others I wanted to ask you about quickly, which I just, I saw these and I thought, ooh, I'm going to steal some of this. (laughs) And one of them was innovation envy. And you talk about how fear leads companies and entrepreneurs to really envy their competition. And there may be, I don't know, they, they may admire them or they more often they're they're led to take these desperate measures that are really quite uh, counterproductive. Talk about this innovation envy and is there a way to to take advantage of it? Certainly. I mean, the first thing is to recognize it when it's happening, right? And I think that one of the things you see a lot with innovation envy is this constant stream of companies looking over their shoulder to say, oh, you know, our competitors just launched an innovation lab. And now they have coffee for startups and they have beanbag chairs. And so we need an innovation lab, Uh right? And we got to rush around and we got to do that, right? Or we got to start hosting hackathons because everybody is now have to, has to describe themselves as a technology company. And, you know, the perfect example of this and what I really started digging into was um, this whole theater around Amazon saying that they were looking for a site for their second headquarters. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when they launched that, like all of a sudden you had like over the course of months, you had 200 cities, even more across the U.S., all kind of trying to be the city that would be uh, the one that was picked by Amazon. And you had mayors promising to change their name to like Senor Amazon if they got picked (laughs) and like all this idiotic stuff happening, right? And the whole point was that like everybody was trying to out-innovate everyone else and be the choice and doing it in such a sad, depressing way. For anyone who was watching that wasn't involved in this search, that it was just like it brought to uh, the forefront this idea that so much of what we're doing is just trying to keep up with everyone else because we don't want to get disrupted. And really, that's what this trend is meant to describe, this idea of uh, how to spot innovation envy and then how to be a company that doesn't 
succumb to it, but that does something in a smarter way. Because it's not that you shouldn't be innovative. It's a real fear. I mean, it could really happen. Yeah, yeah. And of course you should be innovative, but like, what's the right way to do that where you're not driven by envy or, or this desperation to keep up? Right. The last thing was this concept of passive loyalty. And it just brought to mind for me, so many companies think they have loyal customers. And switching from brand to brand now is is really starting to become easier and easier, particularly, I guess, with, with tech products and subscriptions that you have. Since a lot of us don't own things, now we subscribe to things. But if you could talk about the loyalty and the difference between active loyalty versus passive loyalty and how people could start to figure out which ones they have. Yeah, I think the the biggest shift that I think a lot of companies need to make in thinking about loyalty is that it's not a binary thing because a lot of times you describe your customers as loyal customers or not loyal customers. And there's a third category that really nobody is paying enough attention to, and it's customers who are loyal until they aren't. And if you think about that and what that means, it's customers who are loyal out of convenience. Maybe you're on the right side of the road when they drive home. Uh, Maybe they're just buying your product because it happens to be on the end of the aisle when they go to the store. But they're not buying it. The point is they're not buying it out of belief. They're buying it out of something else. It's a loyalty of convenience. Mm -hmm. And a loyalty of convenience disappears as soon as the situation changes. Maybe they start working somewhere else where now their way home from work doesn't go past your dry cleaning store anymore. Mm-hmm. And so now you have, they left. Or in the cell phone market where, or in the uh, home internet service where like a lot of times you can be perfect. Like their service never goes out. You deliver everything they want. They're happy. And if you call them up and say, are you satisfied? They say yes. And then Two weeks later, someone else says, oh, I can give you the same thing and I can save you 20 bucks a month. And they say, see ya, I'm gone. <laughs> Satisfaction does not equal loyalty. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Oh. Last thing I wanted to ask about, which you touched on at the beginning, was this idea of intersection thinking. And it's tied to the notion that trends aren't spotted. You don't see it sitting there. Can you say a little bit more about this intersection thinking and why that is so crucial for identifying trends that you can actually capitalize on. Yeah, if there's a secret to seeing trends before anyone else, it's this. And it is all about being open-minded enough to look outside of your industry and see what other people don't see so you can see patterns and put pieces together. And a lot of what I talk about is how do you start to do this? And one of the tangible tips that I give to people all the time, and it's one of my favorite things to tell people to do, is to go into a bookstore and buy a magazine that's not targeted towards you. And so for me, being a dad of two boys, I would buy Teen Vogue magazine. Because when I do that, I get to go into the world of someone totally different than me and see something that I otherwise would never get to see. And it makes me more open-minded. And we have to choose to do that because Facebook's not going to help you be more (laughs) open-minded. It's going to do the exact opposite, I would think. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they have a business model behind doing the exact opposite, right? Because they reinforce what you already believe and make you angrier if you're already angry. Mm -hmm. Which is a topic I seem to recall about uh, outrage from, was it last year? It was. Yeah. Good memory. It was a manipulated outrage was the trend from last year. And it was all about that. Yeah. Oh, and then I spent all of 2018 
uh, finding examples of what you described there. <laughs> the now point- you, uh, <laughs> you are, are thinking exactly like me because I do the same thing. I'm like, oh, there's another one. There's another one. And it, it's a struggle for an author of a book like this because I'm like, oh, man, I should have had that one. Like, I oh. wish I saw that one two weeks earlier. <laughs> I would have put that in the book, you know? And so that's a constant for me. But the manufactured outrage, I, it, seriously, as the year went on, I had some uh, friends who were complaining about politics, you know, whatever. And I just remember... <laughs> saying you've got to turn off that television <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> they're 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 they are pulling you in you know that's right just like that's a right. fish onto the yeah. boat getting you to watch their commercials by outraging you so yep. Rowett, if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be I would hope it's that we all have the capacity to see intersections and see around the corner and predict the future, but we have to choose to be more observant and more curious about the world. We have to intentionally read things that we may not otherwise read and be more open-minded. And I think that that's a choice. And so when you choose to do it, you can come up with better things and be more innovative and and win, win the future. This is the time to do it, too, because it seems that it's harder and harder for people to go outside their comfort zones. They're not forced out like they were just a few years ago. And let me add to that, Mr. Bargava. I would submit that if people read this book and they're, they're going to be sensitive to these things, they're going to be looking for them, it's going to come up during the year. You're going to mention that you're going to see this, you're going to be at work, and you're going to be talking about this concept, and it's going to influence some aspect of what you're doing with marketing and sales. And your Rohit is going to be living rent-free in your head <laughs> for the next year. So, yeah, I, I sure hope so. Yeah. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? You talk about books quite a bit in, in this book. I do, yeah. And in fact, uh, I can make it super easy for uh, all of your readers because every year I work with my team and we publish the Non-Obvious Book Awards. And so we've just announced the 50 Best Books of the Year. Um, And then we'll choose from that a short list of 15 and then the top five. Um, And so all of that, I'll I'll give you the link to. You can share it in the show notes. Oh, great. Um, a, a, a list of, of favorites. There's always great, great books, and I'm really lucky because I'm on the reviewer list, so I get a lot of them kind of shared with me early so I can get to read them yeah. and, and evaluate them, Well, if they're as looking, you do. Uh, well, you probably get more, so if you see any good ones uh, and they're looking to get on a podcast, <laughs> say, I know this knucklehead who lives here in Virginia with me. So uh. I, will, uh, I will definitely do that. <laughs> I'll definitely do that. I know you do, uh, you do great stuff, and I always enjoy talking to you, so I'll happily do that. Well, super. And also, in your book, you included your favorite blogs that you follow. Yeah, some of them, some of them are blogs. Some of them are more like you know, websites or, or books. Mm-hmm. Magazines. Uh, there's a combination of all of those. Yeah, magazines. So, you know, it's it's just kind of my attempt to share a bunch of different sources for interesting things that I tend to go and look at. Mm. So, Rohit, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book besides going to your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com? It's uh, super easy to learn about the book. You can go to nonobviousbook.com um, and then you just get the latest about the newest version of it. Uh, or you can go to my personal website, which is just my name, rohitbargava.com. Okay, super. And we'll include links to your sites, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle. Uh, your That crazy post-it photo shoot. The, yes, the crazy <laughs> post-it. I've made a note of that. And, and lots, lots of other fun things we can find. 
And uh, we'll post them to your episode show notes, which listeners can find at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music or Stitcher, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Not Obvious 2019 Edition, How to Predict Trends and Win the Future. The author is Rohit Bhargava. Rohit, thank you very much for joining us again for the third time on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that closes the book on episode 208 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Marcus Kauke to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with David Davies, Making Channel Sales Work. 10 tools to create a world-class third-party selling program. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong.